Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Episode 33, Just Eat It, The Intuitive Eating Guide with Laura Thomas. Welcome to the Alternatively Healthy Podcast. I am your host, Becky Rabin, personal trainer, wellness coach, and founder of online wellness magazine, Alternatively Healthy. This is your high vibe, soul soothing weekly dose of wellness. Each week, I will be getting up close and personal, bringing you conversation and insight with some of the wellness industry's most renowned health practitioners, coaches, experts, and thought leaders from around the world. Through our podcast, we hope to give you all the information, resources, and tools that you need to help shape the healthiest and happiest version of you. Laura is an AFM registered nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in intuitive eating, mindful eating and weight inclusive and non-diet nutrition. She has a BSc in health sciences from University of Aberdeen, a PhD in nutritional sciences from Texas University and completed her postdoctoral research at Cornell University in behavior change. She is the host of Don't Salt My Game podcast and was the nutritionist for the 2017 BBC One documentary Mind Over Marathon. Her first book, Just Eat It, How to Get Your Shit Together Around Food was published in January 2019. In this episode, we cover exactly what intuitive eating really is, what has changed our relationship with food. We bust the trends, the myths and rules around intuitive eating and what the healthy, perfect diet is supposed to look like. We talk about the principles of intuitive eating, the role of emotional eating, food intolerances, restrictive diets and the effect of cutting out specific food groups. In this episode, we get super clear about exactly how to master intuitive eating. Hey, Laura. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I think I've been trying to get you as a guest since like, I think it was October last year, I think I wanted you on and we were waiting for the book, but I'm so glad to have you here today and I'm really excited to kind of talk all things intuitive eating. It's definitely something that's resonated hugely with my story and I know also my audiences. So I'm really, really, really excited to hear a lot more about you, but I guess... Firstly, I'd love to just ask, like I ask all of my guests, how did this become your thing? What's your story with food? And like, how did you end up talking about where you are now and doing what you're doing? Yeah. So just in terms of my background, I really classically trained nutritionist. So Mm -hmm. did my undergraduate degree and then a PhD and a postdoc. So it was very sort of academic research-based, did all of that kind of stuff. And simultaneously, I guess, had the hubris of like, (laughs) 
I know what I'm doing around food. Like I have all the answers. I've got science on my side, you know, like that kind of level of (laughs) just ego, I guess. Yeah. And I guess the reality is that I totally didn't have my shit together around food, but having, you know, that sort of label of being a nutritionist, I was like, felt the pressure to live up to that standard. Mm -hmm. And I actually started a sort of wellness blog back in the day. This was like a long time ago and it's kind of mortifying thinking about it now, but I was sort of curating all of these perfect recipes and they were like gluten-free and didn't have any of this, didn't have any of that. So I was presenting this like shiny, polished, outward image of myself, but I was actually really struggling behind the scenes and doing every iteration of either like the wellness diet or, you know, counting calories and macros, but then would find myself binging in the evenings. And so, yeah, there was this kind of like whole weird thing going on. And I managed to sort of pull myself up out of that and move towards intuitive eating. Like I kind of knew of the concept sort yeah. of it was around, but I hadn't done anything formally in my training that covered that. Mm-hmm. And so I was working on my own relationship with food. But then when I actually started my clinical practice after my postdoc, I noticed that the same sort of things were happening with my clients. Yeah. They were eating perfectly sort of yeah. in inverted commas. Yeah, we'll go into that for sure. Yeah. You know, it was kind of the height of clean eating and they were following all the sort of wellness gurus and buying their books and following their plans and downloading the apps and going to the cool workouts in London, all of that kind of stuff. But they were guilty and stressed and anxious about the foods that they were eating. And so it became really clear to me, I guess, you know, drawing on my own experiences with food and having pulled my way out of that and then seeing what my clients were going through, I realized like, it's not about the food. It's about that person's relationship with food. Yeah. And that was being sort of upheld in this, the wider climate that we were in of wellness and clean eating and a lot of misinformation, a lot of fads and trends around food that were normalizing having an unhealthy relationship with food. And that's when I kind of went back and really dug into the concept of intuitive eating and did additional training and started talking about it on my social channels and on my podcast. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how much it has resonated with people to the yeah. point that I've now written a freaking book about it, yeah. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was obviously speaking to people in a way that they were just ready for it, right? Like yeah. they'd been burned by cleaning. They had this sort of like wellness hangover and they were ready for figuring out their relationship with food and ultimately healing that relationship with food so that they could get on with things that were more important in their lives. I'm pretty sure the reason why that has massively taken off is because it resonates with me and I'm sure it resonates with probably every single woman that has listened and is listening to this podcast. You know, Mm. the perfect eating, the binge restrict cycle, the guilt, you know, I think Mm. it's definitely something that we've all focused on. And I guess if I go back to kind of basics like as a whole, as a health practitioner myself, as everything I do, I'm just a huge advocate of intuition in general and people listening to their own bodies, their own needs, what feels right for them. And I know it's taken me personally, like a very long time to actually get so in tune with my body that I even know when, you know what, today is not the day for me to be eating gluten, but actually today I think I can, because I've 
been grown up gluten intolerant. But for someone who's listening and maybe stuck in a rut with their food on that downward spiral, sitting in all of those kind of tick boxes that you just mentioned, firstly, what is, if you were stripping it back to basics, like what is intuitive eating? Like how do you actually describe that? Because I think we kind of all talk about it and we've got into this place of like, look, start listening to your body. But for someone who is so out of their body and so caught up in it, what is the simple kind of term of describing it? I think it's really helpful to just straight out the gate define what intuitive eating is because it's become kind of a bit of a buzz at the moment, which on the one hand is great that people are finding these concepts, but I also see a lot of like, particularly gym bros. I love to shit Mm -hmm. on gym bros. (laughs) There are a lot of them just kind of bastardizing what intuitive eating actually is. So I think it's really helpful to just clear up all the misconceptions around it. And so if we actually take a step back, we're all born with this innate ability to feed ourselves, right? Like you don't see kids hanging out in their high chair, calculating their macros, right? Like we have this innate ability to respond to our internal cues for hunger, Mm -hmm. for fullness, and to broadly speaking, get a variety and a balance of different foods. Like if you put a bunch of different foods out in front of a kid on their high chair, they're likely to take a bit of everything and then move on with their lives, Mm -hmm. get back to playing or whatever kids do. Over time, through you know, well-meaning and well-intentioned things that maybe family members say to us, or things that we've read in women's magazines, and then you know, more globally speaking, more broadly speaking, diet culture that erodes and undermines the trust that we have in our bodies to feed ourselves. We've all read stuff like weird stuff in magazines about how actually you're not hungry, you're thirsty. Or here's 10 ways to keep yourself fuller for longer. And (laughs) what that ends up doing is sort of plants a little seed of doubt in our minds that, oh, so it's not good to feel hungry? Or maybe I'm not hungry, I'm just thirsty. And it sort of pathologizes these signals, these messages that our bodies are sending us and causes us to lose trust in them. Yeah. So you've got all of this stuff kind of building up and accumulating over time. And then we start going on diets or lifestyle trends, which are just kind of a rebranding of the diet, basically. Mm -hmm. And again, that continues to erode our trust in our bodies, but it also layers on this idea that there is such thing as a perfect diet, which Mm -hmm. there isn't. And that's where I think a lot of the shame and the guilt and the anxiety and just the emotional distress that we often experience around food can kind of pile on. And so intuitive eating is a framework, a sort of flexible framework that is made up of 10 guiding principles Mm -hmm. that helps us move from that place of disorder around food back to a place of intuitive eating. And so we can go through what the principles are specifically, but very broadly speaking, the idea is that we remove a lot of that noise And that back and forth that we often experience in our heads about what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. Is this a good food? Is this a bad food? Is this healthy? Is this unhealthy? Is this the most perfect food that I could eat? We've all spent way too much time in our heads having conversations with ourselves. (laughs) So in choose being as a process is really designed to help you strip away all of that noise and find some sort of semblance between our heads and our bodies and find this sort of mind-body connection so that we're not 
too in our heads and we're grounding more down into our bodies to help us make choices about what we're going to eat and when we're going to eat and actually learn to give ourselves unconditional permission to eat the foods that we like, that we enjoy, that satisfy us, to get rid of the external rules and restrictions and let our bodies guide the way. Now that's not saying that there's never any input from our brains. Of course there is. We still have to think about food, but it's keeping it in its place as one important aspect of our lives, but without it overtaking our whole brain. I love like everything that you've said there. And I know that you do talk a lot about getting it out of our heads and like having it all being around mindset of food. Do you think that the majority of everything with our food kind of relationship can be solved by changing our mindset? Is that what you're saying is a lot of it or is it managing that mind to body connection essentially? So I think the first thing is that it's a process, right? There's no single thing I think that is going to help us heal our relationship with food. And I also just want to caveat this whole conversation by saying like, some of us have deeply personal or interpersonal reasons why we struggle with our relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a psychologist. And so I can't speak to that too much. And often when I'm working with clients, we're sort of working within what we call a multidisciplinary team. So I'm working with maybe a doctor if there's some physical stuff going on and also a therapist if there's psychological stuff going on. So there is no one single solution. However, I think intuitive eating is a tool to help, you know, as an adjunct to psychological therapies. It's also really, I think, speaking to this wider societal piece of diet culture, which upholds and normalizes disordered eating and makes that the norm. And so that I think is where intuitive eating comes in. Certainly there are some aspects of maybe how we self-talk and self-care Mm-hmm. which are important to intuitive eating. And there, I give in my book a lot of tools for helping people regain the trust yeah. in their bodies that they might have lost over time. Or I don't even want to say lost because that makes it feel slightly hopeless. But I think it's that that trust has been undermined. To give an example of that. So one of the core concepts of intuitive eating is learning to give yourself unconditional permission to eat all foods, which does sound a little terrifying if you're really used to having rules and restrictions in place. But actually, if we think about it, it's the lack of permission. It's the not giving ourselves permission to eat those foods that causes them to kind of be forced up onto a pedestal, which creates this sort of forbidden fruit effect, which actually makes us lose our shit more around those foods. Or it's what's contributing to the feelings of guilt and shame and that emotional distress that we experience around food. So when we say, hey, let's give ourselves unconditional permission to eat these foods. Mm. We're not saying that you have to eat those foods all of the time, but we're saying, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we just gave ourselves the option of having those Mm. foods without conditions, without sort of bargaining and negotiating with ourselves? One of the fears that people often have is that if they're to give themselves unconditional permission to eat, they don't trust their bodies to tell them when they've had enough or when that no longer feels good. And so a little thought experiment that I like to do with my clients and just when I'm talking about this stuff and for the listeners, if you could just close your eyes for a second, if it's safe and you're not like about to walk into traffic, (laughs) 
if you just close your eyes and imagine, I don't know, imagine you go to Crosstown for anyone who's in London. Those are delicious donuts for anyone who's not in <laughs> in London. Um, right. so, like imagine going and getting yourself like a box of two dozen donuts, like more donuts than you could reasonably eat in a day. And imagine that you have just given yourself permission to eat those donuts for your breakfast. And then again, as a snack, and then again at lunchtime, and then as a mid-afternoon snack, like think about how would that feel in your body by the time it came to dinner time? You wouldn't feel great, no. right? You might feel a little nauseous. You might have a tummy ache. You're probably just not going to feel too hot. <laughs> and by just going through that thought experiment, you can start to think, okay, well, what am I actually going to want to eat by the end of the day? probably like a balanced meal, right? Like maybe some vegetables in there. <laughs> yeah, You're going to want to have a proper meal, right? And what I think that exercise kind of highlights, hopefully people will recognize that actually you have that yeah. sort of intuition, that body wisdom in there. We've just been told again and again and again and again that we can't trust our bodies. Yeah. But by sort of going through that thought experiment, you can sort of begin to see for yourself that actually I do know how to navigate this stuff. Mm. I've just been told repeatedly that I can't. Yeah. And that's where the disconnect and the trust in our bodies comes mm. from. Not because you are inherently flawed. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I love that in general, giving people more permission to trust their bodies and like mm. know that, you know, they were born for us to survive, keep us alive, make us feel good. And they're actually going on to that whole, how other people make us think. So you actually mentioned a little bit back there about normalizing it and how we mm. think it's so normal. So one of the things I was going to say is like, I spent a long time thinking that I totally didn't have an issue with food because I didn't really tick any specific like eating disorder boxes. You yeah, know, I never yeah. threw up. I never starved myself. I didn't really binge either. Like I did the like, go to the cupboard. Oh my God, I'm so hungry. But I guess that is a form of binging. But I think for me, what took me so long to understand that my relationship with food was so bad was actually that it was so surface level that I thought it was normal. And I thought it was totally normal that every woman would go and do that and that everyone else was doing it and only now that I totally can go a whole day without even thinking about food or what I've eaten do I realize how much freer I am and it really is something I think is quite a danger in the industry that we've almost normalized that we have complexes with food how has this kind of played a role out for you and the clients that you work with is it completely normal are we looking to always have our shit together with food all the time? Or is there actually a world out there where you just generally eat because you love your body enough to eat the foods that it needs and enjoys it? Yeah, I think this is a really important point to highlight yeah. because oftentimes I'll get emails or calls from people who they want to come and see me in clinic, but they doubt whether or not their issue is serious enough. And they sort of play down their issues with food or they say things like, well, I don't have an eating disorder or I don't have like a clinical eating disorder. I'm just overreacting, right? Mm. It is a really nuanced conversation because there is a, a clear difference between a clinical eating disorder and disordered eating. Mm -hmm. But we also know that disordered eating can and does slip into a clinically significant yeah. eating disorder. So I'm actually doing a master's degree mm -hmm. at the moment in eating disorders and clinical nutrition. And one of the things that I hear lecturers say sometimes is that 
oh, they're just a little bit eating disordered. Yeah. And I'm like sitting there like, are you fucking kidding? Jesus, yeah. Even within the field of eating disorders, we recognize how endemic this problem is that we're all going around just kind of freaking out internally about food, but we're not actually talking about it. And so we don't realize until recently, I don't think people have realized how pervasive this is. And I was doing a talk recently and a girl came up to me afterwards, just in absolute floods of tears and was like, I've never heard anyone articulate my experiences like this before. Because again, we're all going around just struggling with this on our own and not having a wider conversation about it. So it's easy to play down our problems because we're not talking about it. We're not clear about how much of our sort of brain space is consumed by thoughts of food and our bodies and exercise. There's no space left for anything else when we're consumed by these thoughts. And so, you know, when people reach out to me and say, I'm not sure if this is serious enough or not, I'll say, you know, if it's a concern for you, it's a concern for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're so right. It's almost an epidemic that is way wider spread than, you know, the typical clinical disorder patterns of Mm -hmm. eating that we've known before. And, you know, I see it with my friends. I, I was a personal trainer for three years and actually it scared me to death how many clients would come to me yeah. because a PT's call to go to. You know, it doesn't mean anything. You're going to make yourself look better. And especially because I'm such a believer of you attract what you are. I was attracting all of these girls with, you know, like they were in good shape, couldn't see it, had surface level disordered patterns mm-hmm. of eating, thinking about food all the time, were restricting. And moving on to that point of restriction, and I know you're a huge fan of like cutting out the restrictions, giving yourself permission to actually just eat whatever it is that you want to eat. And I think for years, a lot of people have hid behind and especially for me so I was actually born severely lactose intolerant or just a generally highly allergic girl so I was like intolerant to everything grass I had the highest count like Mm -hmm. I was just a severely allergic person you know I have an MRI scan and I get a reaction to the fluid that they put in my shoulder but I think for a long time I hid behind the fact that oh you know I was eating gluten-free and I was eating soya milk instead of normal dairy and I think a long time I hid my actual disordered pattern of food Mm. around those intolerances. What's kind of your thoughts on that? Like for me, it's massively helped me. I now just have this whole approach of like, I don't really cut anything out. And I've started introducing dairy into my diet as well. Because I've changed my lifestyle, I've actually kind of almost reversed that intolerance. But yeah, what are your thoughts on completely removing restrictions? Why are you such an advocate of getting rid of any restriction? Unless of course, someone's like allergic to it. Yeah, of course. And I would always say, you know, if there's any medical necessity for having something out of your diet, then obviously follow your doctor's advice. I think where it gets a little bit tricky is for a minute there, everyone was cutting everything out of their diets and everyone was intolerant. And I'm not saying that there aren't genuine incidents of that. However, it's very, very, very difficult to diagnose that Mm -hmm. in an adult. Children, we really know when kids are allergic to stuff most of the time. It might be a little tricky to identify exactly what, but oftentimes kids are born with a degree of lactose intolerance and may have allergies to other things that they end up kind of growing out of. Yeah, And so it's obviously really important that that is managed by a specialist because that has implications for kids' growth and Mm -hmm. all kinds of other things. 
Whereas in adults, it's trickier. And there are a lot of people exploiting the sort of trend of cutting things out. And so there are a number of over-the-counter tests that you can get done. You can like send away for a little kit that gets posted out to you and you prick your finger and send them back a little vial of your blood. And then they will come out with this like super detailed scientific looking report that says that you're allergic to fucking everything. Yeah. The problem is that those tests are not validated. Yeah. They're basically a scam to all intents and purposes. And it's really difficult as a clinician to help people navigate and unpack that once they've done one of these tests, because there's always that little part of their brain that's like, oh no, but this test said that I was allergic to, I don't know, X. And so there's a concept broadly in medical sciences mm-hmm. that is sort of the antithesis of the placebo effect. Yeah. So we're all kind of familiar with the placebo effect, I think, but just in case anyone isn't, it's this idea that if I give you a sugar pill and I say, Hey, it's going to cure your joint pain. It might actually help yeah. you feel better because we have such a strong psychological reaction or response to that sugar pill that we have a real tangible physiological response to it. Mm-hmm. And so if we can accept how strong the placebo effect is, yeah, and we've all experienced it, right? Absolutely. Then we also have to accept that the opposite of that is true, which is yeah. that we can have a really strong nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if I tell you that dairy is bad for you or that gluten is bad for you, you are going to have a negative reaction to those foods. Even though you're not actually intolerant to them, even though your body can process them, Mm -hmm. it's your mind that can't process them, which is kind of fucking mind-blowing when you think about it. Amazing, yeah. There's some really interesting studies that have been done around this. So for instance, they took a group of people who were lactose intolerant. They had diagnosed lactose intolerance that had been sort of confirmed by their GPs. And they gave them or they gave one group, at least, some sugar pills, but told them that it had lactose in it. So there was no lactose, but they told the people that they had lactose. And like a proportion of them, like a large proportion of them ended up experiencing symptoms of lactose intolerance, even though they hadn't actually consumed any lactose. And this has been shown for people who say that they have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, given them pills, told them that they had gluten in them when they didn't, and they have this response. So again, I'm not trying to say that people's experiences aren't valid and that they aren't having these symptoms, but I think it does raise the question of what is a true Mm -hmm. physiological response and what is a psychological response. Mm -hmm. And that can sometimes be really, really difficult and tricky to unpick. But I've certainly had clients who have restricted and restricted and restricted these foods, and then they've gone off and eaten them and they've been completely fine. And again, the major caveat is that there is no sort of genuine diagnosis there. And I would also caveat that by saying, you know, if you do have GI symptoms, it's so important 
actually that you don't cut gluten out of your diet and that you keep eating it and go to your doctor for a blood test because that's the yeah. only person that can actually diagnose you with yeah. a gluten intolerance or sensitivity. But the only way that the antibodies to gluten show up is if you actually eat gluten. Yeah. So you can end up getting a false negative test if you cut out gluten from your diet before going to your doctor to see yeah. about it. But there are also other changes that can happen in our bodies when we sort of exclude foods. And another thing that can happen is to do with our microbiome. Again, for people who aren't familiar, our microbiome is that collection of bacteria and microorganisms that colonize our gastrointestinal tract, particularly in the large intestine. And they're really important for a lot of different reasons. They help our immune system. They digest fiber and produce vitamins and produce all these metabolites. We don't need to get into like the specifics of it, but suffice to say, they're good for you. What can end up happening is if we cut out a particular food, then we kind of effectively starve the population of microbes in our gut that feed on that particular food. So let's say it's gluten, for instance. So we starve that population that like to eat gluten and sort of the food that's associated with gluten because we're not just eating gluten on its own. So we cut that all out. That population of bacteria sort of not die off completely, but becomes a lot smaller. And then we start eating gluten again and we start feeling kind of bloated or we have some sort of GI issues going on. What potentially might be happening there is that that group of microorganisms are springing back to life because they've suddenly got a food source again Mm -hmm. and bacteria produce gas when they're fermenting foods. And so you feel bloated. But it actually wasn't the gluten per se that was causing this sort of like increase in production of gas. It was actually from the restriction and then reintroducing that, surprising your gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And if you continue to eat gluten, that population would reestablish itself and it wouldn't feel so weird anymore. This is really true as well of things like beans, if people cut out beans and then add beans back in, or if they've had a lower fiber diet and then they start eating more fiber because you're starting to feed that population of bacteria, they sort of bounce back into action and can end up like producing these symptoms. But again, our head sort of blames it on the food rather than the fact that we've been restricting that food in the first place. Yeah. Does that it's, make sense? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think it's so eye-opening and I'm sure there's so many people listening who are going, oh, wow. And I completely can resonate with that whole story because as someone who was literally from the age of like four months old or whatever it was, mm. was told, like I had a rash, mine always showed up in a rash. And that was with the milk thing. But, you know, then it became, oh, well, she's gluten intolerant too. So let's cut out all of that group. And, you know, I was so young at this point, it was taken away from me. But then it got to the point where, you know, then I was told, you know what, you don't have celiac. So maybe just have the FODMAP diet, which I think for me was the like the game changer of like making things confusing, exhausting. I got really. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Lost, you know, you're told to cut out certain foods, and there's a hell of a lot of foods on that list. You know, no nightshades, no this, no that. And I just remember getting to this point, like three, I think it was like three or four years ago, and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I have no idea what I'm meant to eat, what I'm not. Everything gives me a reaction, but I know that in my head, I'm probably making that reaction. And Everything you said there about your mindset and stuff, I'm such a believer of the placebo and the nocebo effect. And like, I have friends who literally just go, I can eat whatever I want. And also I stay slim and I can eat. And I believe that it's that mindset that is what's making that happen for them. I'm Mm. quite a big believer in your tip there of like the visualization of actually getting into tune with what feels like in your body. But do you think that's kind of a big part to play in that to be completely honest is that like for me, I found like the doctors and the like general places that you could go to to speak to were actually confusing me almost slightly a little bit more because I was just given this list of the FODMAP diet and be told to send on my way to like figure it out myself. The low FODMAP diet really needs to be implemented with someone, not just a dietitian, but a dietitian who's actually trained yeah. in and experienced in delivering a low FODMAP diet. Mm-hmm. And any good FODMAP clinician will do a thorough screening for disordered eating or a history of eating disorder. And if they're really worth their salt, they will refer you to somebody like me (laughs) instead. And I have good friends who are sort of gut health dietitians who yeah. will refer on to me when they suspect that it's more the relationship with food rather Absolutely. than specific foods. So that's just something to be aware of. Yeah. Now that is not to say that for the right person at the right time and in the right way with the appropriate support that a low FODMAP diet isn't helpful because it has been shown to be really helpful yeah. for, for a particular set of people. There's also a piece of this that's really important, which is We have a tendency just as a society to just offload our problems onto food or onto our bodies. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, and this is the way that I would work with anyone that has GI problems and just generally how we work here at the London Center for Intuitive Eating, Mm -hmm. is to look at the person more holistically. The low FODMAP diet would basically be a last resort if we tried everything else. So we would look at stress management. We would think about self-care practices, sleep, if that person maybe needs a referral to psychology. But also just on a very basic way, 
is this person eating regularly? Is this person eating adequately? Do they have what's called a time delayed eating pattern where they're basically not eating anything throughout the day? And then they end up either subjectively or objectively binging in the evening. Of course, that's going to have a knock on effect on your digestion. Are you kidding? Like, (laughs) of course, that's that's going to have an impact. And so there is basically a lot of low hanging fruit that we would look at that oftentimes does end up resolving, if not entirely, at least partially digestive discomfort. And then instead of going down the route of restriction, what we would think about is what can we add into the diet rather than taking away from the diet that might help with these problems that you're experiencing. So is that, for instance, a probiotic, looking at how much fiber or soluble fiber that you have in the diet? So there's lots and lots we can do without going hard down this path of restriction. But oftentimes, and I think it just kind of speaks how we are again as a society is that it feels a lot easier and simpler to get the quick fix. Oh yeah. We are the quick fix generation. Yeah. Yeah. But as you've experienced Becky. And and as like, I've definitely experienced with clients who've gone down the FODMAP route is that can end up fucking you up way more than you were to begin with. I think there's also a piece of like recognizing that a little bit of bloating, a little bit of farting, a little bit of burping is totally normal. Yeah. And so we also have to keep that into perspective. And again, that speaks to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is the idea that diet culture has sort of implanted all of these ideas and over pathologized these normal bodily functions. You cannot pick up a copy of Women's Health magazine without some reference to beat the bloat or or something along those lines. And I'm like, some some amount of bloating is normal. Absolutely, yeah. The whole reason I set up Alternatively Healthy is I used to work at hers on Women's Health. It's my favorite thing to share. And I was just like, for fuck's sake, like people are writing content that aren't qualified and there's nothing in this industry that's like generally credibly based, like real time, not fab based, timeless content that is actually about health. And also like our whole strapline is giving you all the tools that you need to help shape the healthiest version of you. Like, I think that's the whole problem here is people aren't listening to their own bodies and their own journeys and looking at it from a whole holistic approach. Like you said, the stress and the emotions and everything ongoing around it. And we're going to go on to that really briefly before we end as well. But one thing I did want to say is your recent post on healthy pancakes got me so bloody good. I literally like, if you guys are listening and you haven't seen this post of Laura's about the pancakes industry in general, I think it's the most incredible thing. It's the industry we live in right now, right? So this whole issue of categorizing foods as healthy and not healthy and like, what is this perfect eating trend? I just love everything you said, but how is that really damaging our health? Like this whole perfect healthy eating, cut out the gluten, refined sugar, all of that sort of stuff. Like what is it really doing to us? Well, and I guess I just want to say that there's obviously nothing wrong with eating those foods. There's no one right or wrong way to eat. So if you really love, I don't know, pancakes that are made with, (laughs) mashed up bananas and egg whites like you do you yeah yeah (laughs) however if you are only eating those pancakes because you feel guilty about eating anything else if you're worried that that's going to make or break your diet if that causes you again that emotional distress in any way if you were to just eat normal pancakes but even more broadly speaking like when the thought of just having a regular pancake kind of interferes with your relationships your work your career your hobbies your interests or it becomes 
your whole world Mm -hmm. is about trying to refine and optimize and have this perfect diet, then we have to be honest, really honest and sort of point out that focusing on that level of minutia of detail of food and nutrition is also not healthy. We need to kind of take a step back. And again, I think I've made this point already, but thinking about what what proportion of our brains are occupied by thinking about food and our body Mm -hmm. and nutrition and exercise, because if it's like taking over 70 or 80% of our brain, then we don't have time to dedicate to these other parts of our lives, which are really important and also constitute health, right? Nutrition and exercise. Nobody is saying that they're not important. Patently, they are. There is a tipping point, right? We're thinking about those things becomes unhealthy because you don't actually have space to focus on the other things in your life that contribute to health. So whether that's your relationships, whether that's your social life, other hobbies and interests you have outside of food and exercise, Mm -hmm. but also sleep and your mental health and, you know, like actual medicine, all of these other things, our genetics play a huge part in our lives. We're all walking around as though if we just kind of optimize every single aspect of our lives, that we're going to be immortal. Mm -hmm. But actually (laughs) what can end up happening is we spend so much of our lives trying to optimize and refine our health and our diet that actually our whole lives have passed us by. Yeah. And and we haven't actually lived them. So true. I see it so often. And now, like when I look back at people, I see it, I'm like, oh my God, life is too short. And for me, the big change, and my listeners will know this, was like when I got to the point where I literally had like a random fall in the gym and then ended up having to have an MRI. They found shadowing on my ovaries, all of that sort of jazz. And my gynecologist was like, your hormone levels are that of what we see with someone with a severe eating disorder who's like binge. And I always said to her, do you know what? I'm going to hold my hands up and say, like, this restriction I counted macros I was that girl you know for years I remember we had like food delivered to us that was calorie counted and restricted and stuff and like I just remember thinking about my Tupperware like every single day it'd come at a point for me where I'd already started changing this and realizing it wasn't the right thing to be doing and it was just so powerful for me because I was like fuck I'm doing all of this for what to look good is it even to look good I don't even know but all I really want to be is a mum, and she's basically telling me that I'm like premenopausal and that I'm gonna have a nightmare having kids and that for me was the game changer and I was like what is this like I'm not even living life and I think that's the one thing that you've just said there is it's not life is it and I think that is the paradox of healthy eating and I don't know your specific story but what I see a lot in clinic are people who I would consider to have orthorexia Mm. which is this sort of obsession with clean eating and healthy eating and trying to optimize the purity of the food that they're eating. And so what we end up seeing then is amenorrhea or just the loss or the absence of a menstrual cycle. And there are three factors that precipitate and maintain amenorrhea in women, which is over-exercise, undereating yeah. and chronic stress. Mm-hmm. And that can also include the stress of trying to constantly solve this problem of what to eat but we're almost creating a problem that doesn't actually exist. Mm. And Mm. oftentimes part of the treatment for helping people regain their menstrual cycle is to eat 
those foods that yeah. are less than perfect, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, I was always really lucky that I, I mean that never happened to me. But I can tell you how many people of my clients came to me and friends that I know in this industry who are like the face of healthy. That's the mm. bit that's worrying. Like, yeah. I my hands up and say like what I went through, and and I really wanted to talk about working on my self compassion, acceptance, self worth, and that mm. was the big change for me. Loving myself enough to not do that sort of stuff to my body was what really fundamentally changed for me. But I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know that are the face of wellness and you know a a vision of hell yeah who haven't had a period in four years and it's so upsetting and what happens when all those people start trying to have babies and be mums and yeah and you know even if you don't want to have kids yeah a lot of people are like well it's fine because I don't want to have kids actually no it's not fine because it still increases our risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis so losing bone mineralization meaning that your bones essentially become fragile and brittle and it can also increase our risk of cardiovascular disease and heart disease so this is not just a a fun little game of oh let's lose our period for a while like there are serious long-term health consequences and the other trend I just want to talk about is the kind of like new fuck it trend I'm just going to eat what I want I was massively sitting on the like body confidence kind of space for a while for a long time and I still do you know that was something for me for some reason I was just like so lacking in confidence of my body that I thought I had to look a certain way. But I almost feel the industry's slightly gone the other way now in the sense that a lot of people are like, just eat what you want, eat as much as you want, love yourself enough to do that. How dangerous is that side of the spectrum? You know, I think definitely when you're moving through the intuitive eating process, there's almost like a rebellion that goes on. Diet culture is a form of oppression. Mm -hmm. And so I can totally understand why people rebel against that and push back and they're like yeah fuck it I'm just gonna do what I want to do for a while and so I think everyone deserves to have the space to do that where it gets really annoying for me is people who mischaracterize intuitive eating as just fuck it eat whatever you want Certainly there might be a stage while you're going through the intuitive eating process that's often referred to as like the honeymoon period where yeah. people are just like, oh yeah, cool. I can eat donuts. How much fun is this? This is a, really, <laughs> this is a novelty for me. Yeah. I think that's maybe a little bit of what you're speaking to. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, ultimately, like we did with the donut experiment earlier, if we're doing that all day, every day, that's not going to be sustainable just in the same way that eating fucking broccoli, chicken and sweet potato every day for your lunch becomes really boring. Only eating donuts all the time will also become really boring. But on top of that, it's not going to feel great in our bodies, right? Mm. We're not going to have the energy and the stamina and that sense of well-being that we as humans want to kind of gravitate towards. And so a really important piece to remember in this conversation is, yes, it's eating the things that you want, the things that satisfy you, the things that fill you up and don't leave you feeling restricted or deprived, but it's also with attunement to how that feels in your body. And so I think a lot of people forget that intuitive eating, making peace with food is one of 10 principles, right? And there are other principles that are about really learning what feels good for your body. And, you know, there's a whole principle around gentle nutrition, which actually we save until the end so that we aren't approaching nutrition in this like all or nothing, rigid, black and white way that we might have had when we were on diets or lifestyles. But it's sort of saying like nutrition 
A, it doesn't have to be perfect. And B, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like you can have the cookie and the carrot, right? Like they're not mutually exclusive. And so when I hear anyone say, oh, it's just eat whatever you want. Or on the other hand, whenever I hear people say, oh, it's eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. You don't know what you're talking about because those are only small aspects of the overall concept of intuitive eating. This is where it comes back to seeking out information from experts, making Mm -hmm. sure that they are either a registered nutritionist or registered dietitian and have training in intuitive eating, not just training, but experience in intuitive eating and also make sure that they're getting supervision. So, you know, I have somebody senior to me who I check in with a couple of times a month to make sure that my practice is safe and effective. And I have people that check in with me a couple of times a month and we discuss their clients and their cases and make sure that the way that they're practicing is safe and effective, but also ethical. Because like with anything that becomes a bit of a trend, becomes a bit of a buzz, you'll see, I don't know, Jimbro whatever, coming in and talking shit about intuitive eating, but he clearly has no idea what he's talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) I'll jump down off my soapbox now. (laughs) Mentioning those principles, obviously your book, Just Eat It, came out recently. Um, It's been a huge success. It's an incredible read for anyone who is resonating with any of this that we're talking about. And you have a whole chapter, and I guess that's the principle, right, on self-compassion and acceptance in the book. I should probably say that intuitive eating was developed by a couple of dietitians in Mm -hmm. the 90s and they put together the original book called Intuitive Eating and it's in its third edition now. Mm -hmm. I've trained with Evelyn and Elise who wrote that book. And so for my book, I kind of took the essence of what intuitive eating was and just sort of presented it in a slightly more up-to-date way, gave new examples, included new research. But I also added a couple of things to it that I realized were really important for my practice. And one of them was Mm self-compassion. So it's not like an official principle of intuitive eating, Mm -hmm. but it's essential as far as I'm concerned. People need to have that skill. I always talk to my clients about building a foundational sort of toolkit And self-compassion is one of those tools that goes in the toolkit. And then on top of that toolkit, we can start to build the skills of intuitive eating. And then kind of in the book, you you know, it's very much about there are no rules, simple, practical tools, as you just said, and exercises, Mm. including those mindfulness techniques to help you recognize. Mm. What sort of techniques are these? Like, what are some things that people could take away from this that might just change just instantly before they then come and read that book that they can implement into their daily lives? I think really checking in with our self-talk and learning to practice self-compassion when, you know, the road gets a bit bumpy. Intuitive eating is not a linear process. It's kind of all over the place and there will be smooth bits. There will be bumpy bits, but either way, if you can learn to practice self-compassion, it's going to make the whole process that bit easier. So I always say, you know, starting with developing some self-compassion and also developing a mindfulness practice if you don't already. And I know that people get a little like mindfulness. You don't have to be doing 30 minutes of, (laughs) uh, you know, like some kind of really intense meditation twice a day. Great. If that's what you want to do and you have the capacity in your life to do that. 
but you know, I'm working with like busy moms and like, you know, these people who are, they've got a lot going on in their lives. So, you know, if you can do 10 minutes of the cam app every day, that's an amazing place to start. That's what I do, but it's going to kind of set you up, not just for checking in with your self-talk, but also for developing that mind-body connection that I mentioned Mm -hmm. before and really help you develop the skills that you're going to need to tune in and check in with what your body is trying to communicate to you. Because there's this whole thing, we've kind of touched on it already, like the idea of listening to your body or checking in with your body, it sounds so great. It sounds so intuitive, but nobody ever tells you how the fuck to do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think the first step really is developing a mindfulness practice. Yeah. And then secondly, building on that with the tools that I share in the book in terms of how you develop what scientifically is known as interceptive awareness, Mm -hmm. which is basically that connection that we have with the physical and emotional sensations that we have Mm -hmm. in our bodies. A lot of us, again, are quite cut off from that. Mm -hmm. So beginning to develop those skills, that's going to set you up for success with the intuitive being process. I think it's such an approach. I think that's, you touched on it earlier with people wanting that quick fix. And it's just not about that, is it? It's just about wanting to feel good forever. And I think there's a lot of people advocating that in the industry at the moment, and hopefully it's something we move towards. And you've obviously mentioned some of the principles, but I guess just quickly, what are some of the other principles of intuitive eating that are mentioned in the book? Yeah. So the way that I approach it, which again is slightly different in the sense that the principles are the same, but I've kind of mixed them in a way that makes more sense or is more true to how we deliver it with our clients. Mm -hmm. So ditching the diets, learning to honor your hunger, which again, sounds super easy, but people don't do it. Body neutrality, which is this idea of respecting our bodies, even if we don't feel like super hot about them. Unconditional permission to eat, which we've talked about. Then neutralizing your inner food critic, which is again about self-talk and how we're talking to ourselves about the food that we eat. But there's also a lot of like myth busting around nutrition in that chapter. Amazing. Then mindful eating and the pleasure principle. So again, using mindfulness as a tool, not as a rule, but as a tool. Um, And the pleasure principle talks about this idea of connecting with the experience of eating food and all the tastes and textures and the sensory qualities Uh, of food. Yeah. And then uh, feeling your fullness, understanding emotional eating, which is a big one. Yeah. And then towards the end, we talk about intuitive movement and gentle nutrition, which is really kind of like pulling all the threads of everything together and slowly starting to work towards these health promoting behaviors, which actually if everything kind of works out the way I hope it will by going through those other principles, the, the intuitive movement and the gentle nutrition parts sort of take care of themselves. Like yeah. we hope that people will sort of arrive there will happen. anyway. Yeah. I guess that that's just about reinforcing things. Yeah. A sort of thesis that I have in the book, and I think it's really important to say here is that intuitive eating is a means to an end, Right. By going through that process, we want you to think a lot less about food, a lot less about exercise, a lot less about your body so that you can actually be fully present in other areas of your life that are really important to you. Yes, movement is important and it can be really enjoyable and it can be part of our social lives. Yes, food is part of celebration and conviviality. 
they're two parts of our lives. They're not our whole life, right? Yeah. So what do you stand to gain by making extra headspace in your head? <laughs> like yeah. what would you fill that with? And that's something that I get my clients to consider really at the beginning is what do you want to make more time and space for? And what do you want to have more energy for? Yeah. And really what I'm thinking about here is stuff outside of ourselves. Overthinking food and nutrition and exercise really keeps us distracted from wider, bigger picture things that are going on. And it can stop us from really engaging in things outside of ourselves, our communities, our, you know, volunteering and these bigger picture things rather than you know, just being so focused on what's in our dinner. Yeah, I love that. Just basically about being more present, isn't it? And like knowing yeah. what you want in life. I absolutely love that. I think it's the perfect way to finish this episode. And I mean, I had tons of questions on emotional eating. I think that's a part two. There's a whole topic sure. in itself. Yeah. But I think, guys, like I'm sure there are so many people that are resonating with everything that we've said here. And if you want to find out more, obviously the book is available on Amazon, Just Eat It. You can catch Laura at Laura Thomas PhD on Instagram and laurathomasphd.co.uk, right? Yeah. And we have as well for anyone who wants to kind of dig a bit deeper into intuitive eating as a practice, we have an online course, which is a kind of companion course to the book called Just Eat It, Your Intuitive Eating Toolkit, where we talk a lot more about all of the things that we just talked about. Amazing. And you also work with practitioners as well, don't you, to help them train up and get clued up on this? Yeah. So I train nutritionists, dietitians, and other healthcare Mm. professionals. So Mm. yeah, I have an online course that runs every other month. But yeah, I would always recommend doing your own work before trying to help other people with this. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Laura. That was amazing. I truly resonated with it and I'm sure loads of people did as well. So I hope you guys enjoyed it and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. Thank you. You have been listening to the Alternatively Healthy Wellness Podcast Series by Becky Rabin. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Please feel free to leave your comments and feedback below and don't forget to give us a lovely little rating. For more information on our podcasts, other episodes and to find out more about what we do, please visit www.alternativelyhealthy.co.uk And remember, shaping the healthiest version of you means looking purely at you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.